Story is told of a billionaire who owns a private jet. State-of-the-art, brand-new, push-button, autopilot private jet. He jumped into his private jet and then realised, hey, pilot not around. I think I can fly this plane. Because he saw on the pilot seat, he says, how to fly the plane, volume one. So he turned to the first page, he says, to start the engine, press the green button. He looked around, found the green button, pressed the green button, engine started. And then he turned the next page, he says, to taxi uh, the, the plane, press the blue button. He pressed the blue button, automatic, the, the plane piloted on the runway and taxied to it. And then he says, to take off and fly, press the red button. He found the red button, pressed it, and the plane took off and flew. Autopilot. Oh, he was so amazed. Flew for about 20 minutes and said, okay, enough fun. Let's land this plane. But how do you land the plane? So he turned to the last page, how to land the plane. He says, to land the plane, purchase volume two at the nearest flight center. <laughs> In life, sometimes we ask, where is volume two? In other words, where's the answer? And some of us are asking, where is God? That's the question that's being asked in Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is a provocative psalm. It is intentionally so because it wants to jar our sensibility and, and scream out the question that humanity has been crying through the centuries. Where are you, God? Would you bow with me in prayer as we ask the Lord to bless our time in this psalm? Eternal God and Heavenly Father, once again, open our eyes to behold wonderful truth out of Your Word and help us not just be hearers of Your Word, but doers also that we might grow thereby. We thank You in Jesus' magnificent name. Amen. Psalm 44 revolves around the central question, Where are you, God? And it starts with an intriguing introduction it starts with an introduction of celebration and praise in verse 1 to verse 8. Let me read the introduction to you. It is spectacular and magnificent. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. In other words, God, we thank you for your amazing track record of faithfulness. Then he continues to elaborate what this faithfulness looked like in the next two verses. Verse 2, you with your hand drove out the nations, but them, meaning our fathers, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. Verse 3, for not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. And then the psalmist gave his own personal response of praise and worship. Verse 4, You are my King, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. Then comes the crescendo in the music. Verse 8, in God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Oh, what a beautiful introduction. And if the psalm ended in verse 8, it will be a magnificent psalm of praise. Your track record, my response. 
words, how beautiful. Here's the problem. Psalm 44 did not end there. In fact, when it continued, it continued with a great unexpected twist. Just like the storms of life that come unexpectedly. Storms of life come unexpected. Storms of life come unannounced. There's no advance notice and we are taken by the magnitude of the trials and the severity of the difficulties all the dark days. So in the same way now, in facing this, uh, what's they call the challenges, the trials, the psalmist in verse 9 to verse 25, part 2 of the psalm, says something quite terrible. There were three accusations against God. Now notice the mood swing. Get into the emotional content of the psalm. And in order for us to see the contrast and the twist, let me read verse 8 and 9 together. In God we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. In other words, uh, in Singlish, God, you have played us out. You have abandoned us. You were not with us. It is a pessimistic psalm now. Uh, it is probably set up in the, against the backdrop of a crushing military defeat. In ancient wars, the kings go out to wars and the kings bring with them their deities. Because the armies look to the king for morale and leadership and they look to the deities for victory. So that in ancient warfare, it's not just a battle between two armies, it's actually a battle between two gods. And now the psalmist is crying out, Lord, where are you? You have abandoned us. You were not there. This is not right. The second charge against God is this is not fair. From verse 17 to verse 19. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant, our hearts have not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your ways. Now in ancient um, poetries of antiquity, when, when they want to express uh, an emphasis, it's repeated three times. For an added emphasis for good measure is repeated four times. So you hear things like for three things or for, and for four, I will judge you or that the emphasis is given there. So the, the statement is an emphatic statement. Now what is the emphasis here? The emphasis is God, don't you have eyes to see? We are faithful to you and it's repeated four times. Not forgotten you, not been forced to your covenant, not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your ways. We are faithful, but this is not fair because you have played us out. You have not kept the end of your bargain. And then comes the third charge against God. Not right, you were not with us. Not fair, you have not kept your end of the bargain. And the last charge is not cool. You are asleep. How can you possibly be sleeping? So look at now uh, verse 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Can you feel the emotional tone? Why are you sleeping, O God? 
This is not right. This is not fair. This is not cool. You are sleeping on your job. Now here's my question. What kind of psalm is this? First eight verses, oh, our fathers, you have been faithful to them and we praise you, we depend upon you. And then the next part is, we don't like this about you, we don't like this about you, and we don't like this about you. What, what kind of psalm is that? More importantly, why is there this mood swing from praise to complain and resentment? and an anger against God. Why? I want to suggest to us that there is a pilgrimage that we need to walk anchored in God. And when we deviate from that pilgrimage, Psalm 44 is what we are pulled into. It is like a spiritual twilight zone where we have lost our moorings. You see, let's start with the basic. I'm going to share with you a simple paradigm that is important in discipleship and in our spiritual pilgrimage. It starts with the foundation of God's Word. You see, the Word of God is our foundation. The Word of God, as it were, is our core belief system right here, the Word of God. And in the Word of God, it gives to us three things that anchor our core belief system. There is biblical foundation, theological rootedness and a Christian worldview. And this will anchor us in the foundation of who we are, who God is and the unchanging principles by which God deals with us. It gives us meaning and purpose in life. It gives us a glimpse of ultimate reality in the kingdom of God. The Word of God becomes our foundational core belief system. Now, the other reality is that we face the unexpected storms of life, unannounced, unexpected, unwelcome, and we are caught unprepared. The minute we are caught unprepared, we have two choices. One, to go back to the foundation of the Word of God and be anchored in Him. Or two, which is very commonly done, we go back to our own cognitive lenses, our own mindset, our assumptions and presuppositions. And when we, we go not to the Word, but our own thinking, our own presuppositions, what will happen is that it affects the way we see things. Listen carefully, because how we think determines what we see. What we see is not what is out there, what we see is what is in here. Our, our mindset, our presuppositions, our cognitive lenses. And so if this is not rooted in the foundation of God's Word by our own wisdom, our own perspective, it triggers feelings within us. And these feelings can become toxic emotions like worries, anxieties and fears, etc., etc. Even resentment and anger, insecurities. And out of these feelings come our action and our behaviour. Thinking, feeling, being, or oh sorry, doing. It forms our being, thinking, feeling, doing. Now here's the thing. The cause of our action, the choices we make in life, is it based on our feelings or is it based upon our thinking, our cognitive lenses? The answer is our choices is often made based upon our feelings. Advertisers know that. 
That's why in advertising, uh, the, the draw is on how you feel. But we got to realize that how we feel is determined by what we see. And how what we see is determined by how we think. So ultimately, our doing, our course of action, our choices is dependent upon our core belief system. So the minute we do it out of our feelings, out of our emotions, we choose because we feel. Sometimes we, it's pleasure and pain. Sometimes I do it because I feel good. It's nice, pleasure. Others, I do it because I got no choice, pain. But pleasure and pain, feelings capture our doing. Now here's the thing. What we do, our action and behaviour, reinforce how we think. Let me repeat that. What we do, reinforce how we think. How we think impact what we see. What we see impact how we feel. And we are in a vicious cycle. Can you see? And in that vicious cycle, we have departed from the Word of God. And in that vicious cycle, what happened is our cognitive lens, our mindset now becomes our new belief system. Now, here's the problem. It means now we have two operating systems, two source code in life, in one life. We have the Word of God and the foundation of God's Word and principles and conviction. We also have now what is in practice our own belief system, our new core value system, the two are in conflict of the Word and of the world. So when the two are in conflict, we cannot have two operating systems in one life. So what do we do? We do what Psalms 44, the psalmist did. He gives lip service to the Word of God, praise the Lord, yes, but in life it's not like this. I'm so frustrated with the circumstances, I react, etc. Because this is my core belief system now, I give lip service to this and I live in this reality. Can you see the dichotomy? That's a common problem in discipleship in the global church today. That's a common problem in many of how we respond to life or leadership or challenges or insecurities. We have two operating systems in our life and we give lip service to what is foundational and we live out in this vicious cycle. Here's the principle. The principle is we cannot rely on the rhetoric of the past without the reality of the present. The reality of the present, if it's rooted in the Word of God, we will walk with the joy in spite of the storms. We will walk with confidence in spite of the storm. We will walk with dependence in spite of the storm. Our eyes upon God in spite of the storm. But when we have this new operating system, we become insecure, we become complaining, we become lost, and we get angry with God. We don't dare to say what the psalmists have said. But we feel it. Feelings. Where are you, God? You are sleeping. Not fair. You should take care of me. I serve you faithfully. What is happening? Why this? Why that? Why now? Why, God? Where are you? Where's the volume two? Where's the answer? That's the challenge we face in our spiritual pilgrimage today. What, what then is the answer to break out of this vicious cycle? The answer basically is number one, do not love the world nor the things of the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the mindset of the world, the philosophy of the world, the values of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We don't love the Father. So what we need to do is turn our backs from the world and we turn unto God and His Word. So how do we turn to God and His Word? The Apostle Paul gave us the answer, Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. What does that mean? Does it mean we take the body, put ourselves in an altar and burn ourselves up a living sacrifice? No. The body is an instrument of intentionality. In other words, whatever you purpose and intend to do, you need the physical body to do it. For example, if I say, I want to love my family, I want to bless my children or love my wife, how do I do it? The body is that intention. With my lips, I speak words of love. With my lips, I speak words of blessing. In my lips, with my lips, I speak words of prayer for my family. I have to do it through the body, the instrument of intentionality. If I want to love my neighbour or my colleague, I want to wrap a gift for them, I have to use my hands, wrap the gift, or if not, at least buy the gift, pay for it. The body is the instrument of that intentionality to get it done. And then I take the gift, walk to my neighbour with my body, with my feet, and give with my hands to express what is in my heart. And if the body is an instrument of intentionality to fulfill my intentions, the Apostle Paul is now saying, with this body, the instrument of intentionality, offer it unto God to fulfill His will, His calling, His intentions, so that my body becomes a living sacrifice, an instrument of intentionality to follow His will. The one word for it is consecration. So to sacrifice your body as a living sacrifice does not mean you put your body somewhere on an altar someplace. It simply means you consecrate this instrument of intentionality to now speak His Word, speak His blessing, share the Gospel, bless, walk His ways, do His will. Now here's the question, how do we do that? The answer now is in the second part of Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world and its operating system and its philosophies. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, your core belief system. Biblical foundation, theological rootedness, Christian worldview that will bring you in focus to one and one focus alone. Jesus Christ as the epicenter of it all. The whole of Scriptures point to Christ. And so when we understand the Scriptures and the glory by which it points to Christ, our life is transformed towards a Christ-likeness that is at the centre of Christian discipleship, the essence of spiritual formation, the heart of Christian spirituality. We need to walk in the ways of God in order to understand this. Otherwise, we will have the dichotomy in uh, Psalms 44 with verse 1 to 8 praises, verse 9 to 25, God, I don't understand. Where are you? And anxieties and complaints. 
consecrate yourself to God. Now, there is a third part to Psalm 44 that makes it even more interesting. The third part is how it ended. It started with praise. Then it comes to the middle section, a huge middle section of, of uh, the catharsis of the soul, the expression of his unhappiness and frustration. Look at how the psalm ended in verse 26. It's an abrupt ending. It's an ending when I read it, I went, huh? It goes like this, verse 26, Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You know what this means? God, don't be sleeping anymore. Wake up. If you really love us, do something now. That's how it ended. Full stop. It's almost like I come to you now and I will say to you, I want to teach you the secret of the Christian life. It is... End of sermon, thank you. Then you go like, what kind of sermon is that? It ends so abruptly, there's no answer. Where's volume two? You get the idea? The psalm ended like that. Praise you, Lord, for all that you do for our fathers. Your track record is fantastic. We will consecrate ourselves. We praise your name. But God, why like that? Why like that? Why like that? We will wake up and do something now. End of psalm. What kind of psalm is that? It circumvented our expectation. My expectation is something like that. Lord, we praise you, but you know there are so many things we don't understand. Why is this? Why is this? Why is this? And Lord, do something now. But Lord, I understand. Not about us. Like Job, huh? Job go like, ah, after all the ranting against God, I'm sorry, I repent. I was wrong. You are sovereign. You are Lord over all. And then God come and bless. And thank you, Lord. They live happily ever after. But the psalm didn't end that way. Abrupt. And we are left the question, where's volume two? The answer that satisfies my mind as to why this psalm even exists in the Scriptures is that this psalm is not meant to be a solitary psalm in the entire Scriptures. What that means is, it is meant and exists as part of the pages of the Scriptures so that the rest of the Scripture will give meaning and understanding to this abrupt psalm. If all of the Bible is only Psalm 44, we have a huge problem. It's an existential problem. It's a cosmological problem. It's a philosophical and theological problem because the conundrums of mankind and the deepest problem of man has no answer if the whole of the Bible is only one page, Psalm 44. But that's not the Bible. Psalm 44 exists in the Word of God to tell us that this is the frustration. This is no answer from the rest of the Scriptures. If you get that, then you have to ask yourself, then what does the rest of the Scripture tells us? The rest of the Scripture points to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the key 
because he doesn't just hold the answer. He is the answer. He doesn't just have volume two. He has volume two. Sorry, he is volume two, volume three, volume hundred, volume thousand, volume million. He is the answer. When you have Jesus Christ in the center, everything that is a conundrum, a confusion, a frustration in this psalm is being unlocked and answered. I have found three theological principles that have governed my thinking in reflection of this psalm. The first theological principle I've learned is that God accepts and He doesn't mind our honesty. That's why this psalm exists and other psalm exists. God accepts, He doesn't mind our honesty. We can be honest with God. Now, I must add as a pastor, sure, you can be honest with God, praise God, but I have two words for us. Grow up. Because if we don't grow up, all we do is, I, God, God, I'll be honest with you. This is how I honestly feel. You end up Psalms 44. No answer, no volume two. Until we come back to the foundation of God's revelation and His Word in Christ Jesus and His Gospel, we can't gain perspective. Grow up. And when the storms of life come, you grow up by three things that you, you do. One, what must I remember? Two, what must I learn? And three, what must I do? What I, I must remember is very important because we are forgetful creatures. We forget what is here in the core value system and we just run astray because we forgot. Creatures of forgetfulness. A story was told of two elderly couple in their 90s and, and their problem was they have been very forgetful, went to their GP, their doctor, and the doctor gave them a physical checkup and said, nothing wrong with you except age is catching up. Your, your brain cells are therefore dying. Therefore, you forget. You just write things down. You'll be all right. That night, old man and old man watching television, old man was going to the kitchen and his wife said, I want ice cream. Husband said, okay. And wait, wait, wait. You must write it down. Otherwise, you will forget. I will not forget. No, because I want strawberry, my ice cream. Okay, you, you must write it down because you will forget. I won't forget. But I also want whipped cream with my ice cream. You must write it down, otherwise you forget. I won't forget. It's ice cream with strawberry and whipped cream. Forget. He walked into the kitchen. 20 minutes later, he came with his tray to the wife and offered his wife ham and bacon. The wife looked at him, looked at the ham and bacon, blinked and asked, where's my toast? We are creatures of forgetfulness. Grow up. What must I remember? What must I learn? And the light of what I learned, the tuition fees I have to pay when these trials of life come, what must I do? The second thing I learned as I reflected on this psalm is God is not insecure. He allowed Psalm 44 in the Scriptures without an answer, ended abruptly because He doesn't feel He needs to give an immediate answer all the time. He's not insecure. 
He doesn't call a heavenly counsel, a Gabriel, come, 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 Michael, Archangel, come. Bring the most intelligent angels we have. We're going to have a committee meeting and decide how to respond to this idiot who asks this kind of question and give me these charges. It's called image management. God doesn't need an image management. He's not so insecure. He must give an immediate answer. Come on. He is God. It's only we are impatient. We keep asking for volume two. I have a new volume up. It's the <laughs> latest book. It's called, It's Crazy. You want a volume two? This is not too bad. I, uh, I was asked to co-author this with my first marketplace uh, business mentoree. His name is Dato Edward Ong and his story is an incredible story of God's stories of faith and his pilgrimage of trials and difficulty with no immediate answer. And, and so, uh, as, as we went through this book together, uh, write this together, the idea why he says is crazy is because in the pilgrimage of faith, there are crazy things God leads us to that has no answer until later. No immediate answer until the events unfolded, until we learn to grow up by paying our tuition fee and grow and learn. So some of the chapters is, he's, he's a property developer. So it's crazy to build a thousand room resort where there are few tourists. It's crazy to pour money into the sea. When your debt balloons to $2 billion overnight, it's crazy to chase your creditors because usually creditors chase after you. It's crazy to build your own power plant. When God tells you something new, it's crazy to live, uh, it's crazy to have core values and actually live by them. It's crazy to eat humble pie and apologize to your staff. It's crazy to value a staff who makes a costly mistake. It's crazy to throw millions into restoring an old relic. Um, then he wrote, it's crazy to walk out of a train wreck alive. CNN actually covered this train wreck near New York and by his grace, he and his family came out of it alive. And that story is told in this chapter. It's crazy to build for future generations. It's crazy to buy an airline in the middle of a pandemic. It's crazy to finally see your dream come true. It's crazy. And in this story, there are episodes of God's stories of how there is no immediate answer until God comes through. Life is like that. But here's the third thing I learned. I learned that God uh, doesn't mind our honesty. He's not insecure to give an immediate answer. The third I learned, instead of giving an immediate answer, God chose to give the ultimate answer and the ultimate answer is in Jesus. You put Jesus, the, the, the centre, the epicentre of the Scriptures, the focal point back into Psalms 44, everything makes sense. Even the charges against God. Let me elaborate this for you and then I'll come to a close. What are the three charges against God? The first charge against God is not right. You have abandoned us, you are not with us. God sent His Son and His name is Emmanuel, God with us. 
Throughout the scriptures, God declared, I am with you, I am with you. Do not be afraid, I am with you. God is with us. So Psalm 44, apart from the rest of scripture, wouldn't make sense until we put it in its proper place. Everything comes forth in its beauty and its glory. God with us. The second charge is not fair. You have not kept your end of the bargain and God says, certainly it's not fair. I gave my son to die for your sins. You see, they declare our righteousness. You have not kept the end of the bargain. God says, all your righteousness are as filthy wrecks before me. The only righteousness I accept is the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God in him. It's a divine exchange that is not fair. It is extravagant grace. The last charge against God is not cool, you are asleep. And God's answer in Christ Jesus is yes. I have slept the ultimate sleep of death for you on the cross that you might live. You see, in Christ, every charge is answered in a sublime and profound way. I am with you. There is a divine exchange, even though it's not fair. The righteousness of Christ for our unrighteousness who slept the sleep of death for us that we might live forevermore. I want to close with a true story I told at the IDMC conference a few months ago. It's a story that was written in the Columbia Chess Chronicles in New York City in August 1888. It's a story that revolves around a picture and this painting depicts Satan playing a chess game with a young man. The young man is losing. He's just one move away from losing. The painting is called The Chess Players, more commonly known as Checkmate because only one move left, this young man will be checkmated. This painting was in the house of a minister. His name is uh, Reverend Harrison, R.R. Harrison. Harrison was a formerly a prominent lawyer in Virginia, in Richmond, Virginia. Became a minister. And Reverend Harrison invited different guests to come to his house for dinner. At the end of dinner, he had a guest called Paul Morphy. Paul Morphy was an expert chess player. He was attracted to this painting. He was studying it for a while and then he modestly made a statement. He said, you know, I could take the young man's position and win the game. Reverend Harrison said, surely, Mr. Morphy, not even you can turn this game around. So Paul Morphy said, let's try it out. They brought the chessboard, they replicated the pieces and he played the game, taking the young man's position and he won against Satan. They were surprised. They asked him, what's the key? How did you win this game? And his reply is, because in studying the, the painting, he recognised, this is not game over. The king has one more move. The king has one more move. And when the king makes the move, everything else changes. In life, we may think it's game over. In life, we may think it's so difficult. But the king has one more move. 
In life, we think we don't have the answer. Where's volume two? But the king has one more move. In life, we think everything is short-circuited and there's no more move for us. But the king has one more move. In life, we think it is hopeless. But the king reversed everything because he has one more move. Satan thought he has won against Christ at the crucifixion, at the cross. But Jesus rose from the dead. That was his one more move. And when the Lord risen, rose from the dead, everything in human destiny changes. There's salvation for mankind because Jesus died, paid the price and the penalty for sin and He rose victorious, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus, epicenter of it all. And when we come back to this foundation in the Word of God, we stand firm in whatever storm of life because the King has made one more move and we stand victorious in Him. Please listen now carefully to the victory. The victory does not mean He will remove your problems or your struggles. What the victory means, He, he who bring you to it will bring you through it. He will not bring you to a place where His grace cannot keep you. So that in the place of their struggle, whatever their struggle is, whatever the challenge is, there is the joy of the Lord. There's a rest in the Lord. There is a testimony of the God's stories that would ultimately come. Where is God? His answer is, I am here. And His name is Jesus. just listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.